Matthew chapter 11. Let's begin reading with verse 7. Brethren, let us hear God's Word. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, this is Elias which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. May the Lord bless the reading of His Holy Word to our hearts this evening. We live in a violent society. It is impossible to escape the images of violence that surround us daily. If we pick up a newspaper or magazine, or if we turn on the radio, or I trust exceedingly rarely, if ever, the television, we find ourselves overwhelmed with graphic descriptions or portrayals of man's destructive and violent nature. Our culture feeds on an unhealthy diet of violent entertainment and hostility. Our society sounds like that described in the days of Noah. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And yet, there is one kind of violence that appears to be pleasing in the eyes of God. We might call it holy violence. It is a violence that finds its source in the saving grace of God Himself. This portion of Scripture finds our beloved Lord making reference to this holy violence. That is the title of our message this evening, Holy Violence. Look with me. We've read it already, but now let us look at it again. Verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. 
In this passage set before us, our Lord Jesus speaks of the greatness of John the Baptist. John was no weak reed shaken by the wind. He was a mighty, uncompromising preacher of repentance. And his rugged manner of living stood as a witness to his strong constitution. John was not a man of soft clothing, found only in king's houses. He came out of the wilderness thundering the glorious message of baptism for the remission of sins and calling a sinful nation to repent and believe on the greater one whose shoe latchet he was not worthy to unloose. John was great because he was the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. John was great because of the one he announced. John was the forerunner of Messiah the King. This was a vitally important role in history, exceeded only by Messiah Himself. John is the Elijah who was to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And this is why the incarnate Son of God declared John to be the greatest man ever born of woman. And yet having lavished such praise upon John, the Lord surprises us here by saying that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. John belonged to the old order, the old covenant. And while he faithfully announced the coming Christ, it was Jesus who brought the most radical change in history. It was Jesus who brought the dawning of the new covenant. And it was Jesus who brought the inauguration of God's kingdom to the light of day. The law and the prophets were the revelation of God to the time of John. The whole body of the Old Testament Scriptures pointed to that great coming one, the seed of the woman, Abraham's seed, David's seed. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament Scriptures. The Lord Jesus Christ is the key to understanding the law and the prophets. And Jesus and His kingdom are the very focus of all to which the Old Testament Scriptures pointed. So by praising John and then comparing him to the citizens of the kingdom, the Lord Jesus was exalting the greatness of His kingdom. None born of woman greater than John, but the least in my kingdom excels him. 
And then the Lord Jesus tells us that the kingdom suffers violence and that the violent take it by force. So God willing, this evening I would like to open up what the Lord speaks of in verse 12 under these two heads. Holy violence defined and holy violence described. Let's define holy violence. First, let's just take the word violence. Violence means to use or apply force, implying the most ardent zeal and the most intense exertion. This is a very strong, powerful word in the Greek. The example is of a kingdom invaded and seized, taken by storm. Imagine, if you will, a kingdom and its walls standing, hopefully, uh, in strength against all invading forces, and yet looking out across its walls and its high towers to see an army surrounding, powerfully armed, determined to storm that kingdom and take it for its own. That's the picture. Ardent zeal, intense exertion. We must have that kingdom. The images of warriors who are storming their way into the gates of this kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And the violent take it by force. The violent here are those who use force. And it's uh, indicating those who strive to obtain the privileges of the kingdom of God. And they do so with the utmost eagerness or holy violence. To take something by force is simply to seize upon something To claim it for yourself. The underlying concept is the eagerness behind it. Holy violence is a work of God. It is ultimately seen in men's lives, but the source of it is the Most High God. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says... For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here we see God's blessed Word set before us as something sharp, 
something that pierces, something that cuts down to the very core of what man is, where he lives, where his thoughts reside, where they bubble up into his life, the intents of his heart. God's Word pierces, cuts. These are the very ideas set before us in Scripture. We don't have nice, fluffy terminology set before us. God's Word is presented to us as an instrument of violence. Acts chapter 2. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and we will see Peter wielding this blessed sword. Acts chapter 2. Listen, as Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, wields the sword of the Spirit. Verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by Him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also, my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter takes up the sword of the Spirit. And he begins to use it upon his hearers. Then he begins the application as he does his holy surgery. Or as he begins his holy violence upon them. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried. And his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ. He's saying, here's what the Scriptures meant. The Lord Jesus would be raised up. He is the promised one. And he says... <clears throat> That his soul was not, excuse me, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ. That his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. Now by the way, that would be blasphemous terminology to the Jews. He has taken the very Scriptures that they say they believe. He has held up and exalted the Lord Jesus Christ by telling them that these Scriptures 
are all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, and now he begins to plunge into their very consciences. He says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. He's saying He is the Son of God. He is Messiah. He is David's greater Son. And having received the Father of the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, He hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Brethren, He has taken the Word of God. He's exalted the Lord Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes for their hearts. He said, you took Him with bloody hands. You crucified Him. He didn't pat them on the back. He didn't say, oh, I'm here to fulfill your needs. I'm here with some news to make you feel a little better about yourselves today. He comes by the power and might of God Almighty and His Holy Spirit. And He plunges the Word of God into their hearts and says, Jesus is the Lord. You killed Him. What was the result of that? Brethren, look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you see it? Brethren, that's holy violence. Where the Spirit of God cuts to the heart of men. The word prick here means to pierce. What does the Word of God do? It pierces. Dividing asunder between soul and spirit. And that's exactly what it did here. Brethren, holy violence is that glorious miraculous, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in which He illuminates and convicts the sinner's heart, wounding him with the sword of the Spirit and sets him longing for the healing righteousness found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, that is holy violence. That is a violence that God Himself loves to perpetrate. It's set before us here. And it's described in many different ways throughout the Scripture. This idea of being pierced to the heart is not the only way that this holy violence is described. Brethren, God's kingdom came in the glorious person 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus has told us, though John was great, though there's never been a greater man born of woman up to his time, the kingdom of heaven is now being assaulted. By whom? The violent. Who are those violent people? Who are those that are endeavoring to lay hold of the kingdom with zeal, with eagerness? Well, let us see them described in the Scriptures. Brethren, holy violence enters the soul when Christ ascends His glorious Spirit to do His saving work. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. The Lord Jesus says in verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now what is thirst? Brethren, we know that thirst is a vehement desire for anything. As one lexicon says, those are said to thirst who painfully feel their want of and eagerly long for those things by which the soul is refreshed, supported, strengthened. I have lived in the South most of my life. And many days from my childhood until my most recent days, I have had to labor throughout the week at times in the hot southern sun. You get out there, you labor all morning in uh, digging a garden or doing construction work or some type of intense physical labor out in that heat. It doesn't take long before you start to get thirsty. As your body expends the moisture... As the heat presses in upon it, it's not long before you want a nice cold drink of water. Doesn't it begin to drive you, brethren? At first, it's just a slight desire. I'm getting a little thirsty. But if you continue without satisfying it, it begins to grow in intensity. It's the way we're made. And you begin to long for it. Your mind begins to give you images of a nice cold glass of water, ice, (laughs) or something that is refreshing to you. And after a while, brethren, it goes from simply being an intense desire to being painful. And brethren, when men are cut off from satisfying their thirst, They will become violent. And they'll do anything to slake their thirst. The Lord Jesus Christ 
isn't saying, blessed are those who once in a while have a little twitching desire for something cold to drink. He's saying, blessed are those who are driven to quench that burning desire. Brethren, Psalm 42 verse 1 says, As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul for Thee. Jesus Christ is setting before us something that many of us have never known a day in our lives. Jesus is saying, You are blessed when your soul thirsts when it pants, when your soul's tongue is hanging out and desiring the righteousness of God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Why is that a blessing? Because, dear friend, That is the holy violence of God driving you to the things of Christ. And the Lord promises that those with that thirst will be satisfied. Psalm 63, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. Brethren, this is the terminology of urgency. My soul, my inmost being, what I am in the core of my existence. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see Thy power and Thy glory so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. Brethren, when the Spirit of God is doing His wonderful saving work in the soul. It creates in us a holy violence, a thirst that cannot be satisfied in anything but God Himself. I tell you with sorrow in my heart, if you can be satisfied by the things of the world, you will be. If you can be satisfied by the trinkets and the trash of this world, you will be. But there is no blessed attached to that. If you hunger and long and thirst for the living Christ and the righteousness that is found alone in Him, that is a blessed, holy violence. It'll drive you on to Christ, friend. It's the same thing with hunger. Hunger is to desire with great eagerness. Do you notice over and over the the words that the Lord has has chosen here and inspired by His Spirit, whether it be the Hebrew or the Greek, continue to point to this idea of eagerness. You remember as a child sitting in the back seat of the car, waiting to get to Grandpa's house or some beloved aunt or uncle or cousin, whether it was a short journey or a long journey. You couldn't wait 
to get there. There was an eagerness that the very thought of seeing that one, of jumping into Grandpa's arms or, or to being with that beloved and blessed one drove you. How long before we get there? How long before we get there? When are we going to get there? There was a great eager anticipation. Brethren, these are the kinds of things that only those touched by a holy violence understand. They are eager for the things of God. There is that holy anticipation that cannot be satisfied but by the glory, the holiness, the righteousness, the goodness of God Himself. His presence, His work, His forgiveness, His Son. Psalm 107, verse 8 says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Now, why does the psalmist have to say that? Because it's not our nature to do so. We don't by nature praise God for His goodness. Why does the psalmist say, Oh, that men would do this? Well, he answers himself, For he, the living God, satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Brethren, history is littered with stories of men that when they are cut off from food will do the most unthinkable the most unimaginable things to satisfy that hunger. They'll eat. They'll put things in their mouth they would never consider otherwise. But the hunger wells up within them and it is a violence that drives them sometimes even to unspeakable acts, even into cannibalism. Have you ever hungered for righteousness. Have you ever been driven with an internal burning desire to feast upon God, upon His goodness and His righteousness? Oh, He filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Listen to the Lord Jesus, brethren. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Brethren, that is why the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are you that do hunger and thirst, because that's going to be satisfied in the Lord Jesus Himself. But if you can be satisfied by the things of the world, you will be. You won't feast on Christ. You might even feast on religion. I like those people. Well, I like some of those songs they sing. Those are real toe-tappers. I just like them. Some of the nice people down there, they just treat me kindly. I just like to be down there. But we can hunger for, for all kinds of religious trappings. And of course, it's not wrong to want to be with the people of God. But I'm saying without Christ, 
simply another social club. Just a benevolent society. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, if you hunger for righteousness, if you hunger for the bread of life, you come to me and you will be satisfied forever. Brethren, His body, His blood, were poured out that His dear children might be cleansed for all eternity. This is why He calls us to His table. Let's don't be so afraid of being Roman Catholics or sacramentalists that we put away the glorious feast that the, God, that, that the God of the Bible has called us to, to remind us of that glorious call. Come, feast on me. Come to my table. Take my body. Take my blood. It is not the real body and blood. We are not Romanists. But these are the glorious symbols on that which satisfies the soul. Brethren, those that are lost, those that are cut off from God, the longings of their soul look out to the world and they stuff everything that the world has to offer in to try to fill the void, to fill the emptiness, money, power, immorality, all of the things that the world offers. I'll fill my body with drugs so that I don't feel this gnawing ache in my soul. But brethren, when the Holy Spirit comes and He works that glorious, holy violence and a hunger springs up and a thirst springs up, it will drive a man, a woman, a child until he gets to Christ. And there he feasts. He feasts by faith on the resurrected Savior. He feasts by faith on the prophet, on the priest, on the king that God has provided. He comes to the table with joy, not because it's just, well, one of those ceremonies we stick on to the end of a, a service once in a while when uh, we think about it or when it's convenient. But it's the call of Christ to come and feed on Him and to remember the body and the blood by which our sins are put away forever. Oh, brethren, to the soul that's been cut, to the soul that's been pierced by the Word of God, to the soul that's been made to know that it's lost, cut off from God by its sin, oh, the Gospel is a glorious sound. To get to Christ is the object of the heart and its faith, and it is there that the longing soul finds a feast of fat things. Hallelujah, brethren. Revelation chapter 7, verse 16 says, And they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. Why? For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them. The Lamb shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. 
brethren, the soul made alive by the piercing work of the Holy Spirit cannot rest until it rests in Christ and His promises. And I guarantee you, whatever your experience is, and I, I, I try to bind no man to any particular experience, when the Spirit of God does this work, friend, you'll become the violent that sees upon the kingdom with eagerness. I must have it. I will press in whatever the cost. Turn to Luke 18. We see holy violence yet again. Luke 18. Verse 9. And He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Brethren, here is spiritual deadness self-satisfaction look what I've done look at me I'm alright oh I'm not like this one I don't even know how this vile one can come in here I'm so thankful I'm not like him thank you Lord that I'm not like him this is the voice of self-satisfaction and dead religion. There's no hunger here. There's no thirst here. There's no holy violence. Just a man talking to himself, thinking that he's praying. Oh, what a frightening picture. That a man can stand and think that he's communing with God. And the only one he's talking to is himself. The publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Brethren, the Spirit of God at work in a man's heart. Makes a picture that is foreign to the world. The idea today is if you're not bouncing off the wall with delight, well, you must not be a Christian. We come into the kingdom simply because well, we're people with problems and Jesus is the big problem solver. But no. No. The publican stood afar off. Why? A work of piercing had begun 
He couldn't even hold his head up. He couldn't look upon the Most High and Holy God. The tense of the verb is that he was he went on smiting himself. He didn't just go, oh. All he could do was beat upon his breast. And he could not look up into God. What do you see? But holy violence, what would cause a man to smite himself? Holy violence. He saw his own wretchedness. He saw his own darkness. And it made him cry out to the Most High, even with veiled eyes, Oh God, could you have mercy on someone like me? And brethren, there's good news. He wasn't there that day out of religious habit. His own heart drove him to find satisfaction for a heart pierced with its own wickedness. And the Lord Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Holy violence causes us to do things that make the world stand back and wonder. Why would a man beat himself? Because he could not rest until he heard from God that his sins were put away. That's a hunger. That's a thirst. Brethren, a soul in such a state will seek Christ at all costs. Do you hear? At all costs. And that's wonderfully set before us in the Scriptures. We'll only look at two examples. Turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. Verse 22. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him. And thronged him. I want you to get a hold of that word. Throng. They thronged him. The idea is that he's pressed in on all sides. The, the, the word in Greek is very graphic. It, it, uh, it means to press in so as to stifle, as to suffocate. If you've ever been perhaps in a large crowd at some particular event, where the people were pressing in on you on every side, and there's that heat and that stifling feeling that you may suffocate. And brethren, that's the idea. Christ is walking through the town. You can't see Him for the press. You know that somewhere in that crowd, all those people thronging about Him is the Son of David. But you can't get to Him. They thronged Him. And a certain woman, which had an issue of blood twelve years, and had suffered many things of many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was nothing better, but rather grew worse, 
when she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. Oh, don't miss the picture. Here stands this woman, sick all these years, weak. She spent her money on all these physicians that have done her no good. And yet she hears good news. Jesus is passing by. Wait a minute. Jesus. He's the one that's healing people. He's the one that touches the eyes of the blind and they see. He's the one that touches the ears of the deaf, deaf and they hear. He's the one that touches the leper and his skin is made clean. If I can just get to him. Oh, but look at the crowd. Well, I guess I'll wait for another day. I guess I'll just go home and uh, maybe he'll come through again. Brethren, that's not her heart. She said, he's in there. And I'm going to get to him. She began to do some things that were most unladylike. Brethren, if she was squeezing in between all those men, that was something he didn't do in those days. She was doing everything she could to find a place, to find a gap, to move past this one, to shove past another. If I can just lay hold of his garment, that's all I need. Let me say to you, sinner, have you ever been gripped to lay hold of the Lord Jesus? You say, well, it's hard. Strive to enter in. Well, it's difficult. I mean, I don't, I don't like this talk about violence and striving and hungering and thirsting. I mean, can't I just raise my hand in the meeting and sign the card and say, okay, I'm going to heaven? Oh, the Scriptures don't paint that picture. This woman says, whatever it takes, I know He's the only hope I have. And brethren, that woman pressed through that crowd until she touched Him. And I say to you, whatsoever the condition of your soul, whatever the wrestlings that you are enduring right now, whatever agonies you sense and know by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, press on until you lay hold of Christ by faith. His brethren, that's what holy violence is all about. It drives the sinner until he can touch that garment. Oh, brethren, look with me at one more place. Mark chapter 10. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Mark 10, verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as they went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out. 
he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Brethren, do you see the picture? Here's a blind man. He's sitting by the side of the road and he's begging. The light has never pierced through his darkened eyes. But all of a sudden, good news comes to his ear. Jesus is passing by. What? Jesus. Jesus? Wait, the one that opens the eyes of the blind. Brethren, this is what our gospel is about. It's about those who are blind and deaf and leprous in their sins, dead in their sins, without hope, except for Christ. And the good news comes. Here is the gospel. Jesus is passing by. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, became man so that He could keep the laws that we've never kept. So that He could be crucified on the cross of Calvary, bearing the sins of all of His people. Raised again the third day, ascended up into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, where He intercedes for His people. They are saved to the uttermost because of all that glorious work and because His wonderful session at the right hand of the Father Get to Him. There's your hope. The Gospel, as Paul says it to the Galatians, Christ was evidently set forth among you. Brethren, that's the work of the preacher. That's the work of the evangelist. That's the work of the teacher to take Christ, the glorious and holy one, and set Him before evidently the eyes of God's people and say, Here, the Son of David passes by. So that those that are blind may cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Amen. Brethren, here it is. Look carefully. It says in verse 48, And many charged him that he should hold his peace. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. Cap it. Be quiet. You're bothering him. Brother, I love this. But he cried the more a great deal. Son of David, have mercy on me. But then he wasn't sitting there going, Son, uh, is he gone? Okay, well, maybe another time. Holy violence drives a man to cry out the great deal more when anything gets in his way, when any obstacle, when any hindrance to Christ sets before him. He must have Christ. Son of David, I don't care if you're telling me to be quiet. Son of David, have mercy, have mercy. And brethren, one of the most beloved, one of the most blessed, and one of the most glorious passages 
in all of the Bible. Verse 49, And Jesus stood still. Are you blind? You cannot see the ways of God. You do not know what to do. You know that you're in darkness. There's a light. A great light has risen. Jesus Christ is the light of the world for those that are blind. His promise is that you call on Him. He hears. Brethren, the Lord Jesus Christ heard the cries of blind Bartimaeus. And He stood still. He stood still. And commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort. Rise. He calleth thee. Amen. His gospel calls sinners tonight. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Be of good comfort. He calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus by the way. Brethren, when, when we understand our condition by the glorious work of the Holy Spirit and the piercing and cutting work of God's sword, His Word, we will hunger, we will thirst, we will cry out, We'll press through the crowd. We'll call on the Lord Jesus by the wayside. But we'll get to Christ. Whatever the cost. Let me close. But I trust a familiar passage to you. Bunyan wrote in Pilgrim's Progress about Pilgrim coming into Interpreter's House. Then the interpreter took him and led him up towards the door of the palace. And behold, at the door stood a great company of men as desirous to go in, but durst not. There also sat a man at a little distance from the door at a table side with a book and an inkhorn before him to take the names of them that should enter therein. He saw also that in the doorway stood many men in armor to keep it, being resolved to do to the men that would enter what hurt and mischief they could. Now was Christian somewhat in a maze. At last, when every man started back for fear of the armed men, Christian saw a man of a very stout countenance come up to the man that sat there to write, saying, Set down my name, sir. The which when he had done, 
He saw the man draw his sword and put a helmet on his head and rushed toward the door upon the armed men who laid upon him with deadly force. But the man, not at all discouraged, fell to cutting and hacking most fiercely. So after he had received and given many wounds to those that attempted to keep him out, he cut his way through them all and pressed forward into the palace. Do you know what Bunyan's scripture reference is? Matthew eleven twelve. The violent take it by force. Not the force of themselves, but by the glorious work of God's Holy Spirit, bringing them to see their need of Christ, raising up in them violence that will drive them on to the Lord to lay hold of His kingdom. He reached the palace at which there was a pleasant voice heard from those that were within, even of those that walked upon the top of the palace saying, Come in, come in, eternal glory, thou shalt win. So he went in and was clothed, excuse me, and was clothed with such garments as they. Then Christian smiled and said, I think verily, I know the meaning of this. Friend to you, have you laid hold of Christ by faith? Have you repented of your sins as the Word of God has done its work in your heart? Have you pressed on to Him who washes away all of the sins of all of His people in His precious blood? There you will find rest. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.